As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Seb stafford Blore. Hi, Seb. Hello, Joe Devine. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Fine, fine, fine. Well, also joining us today is uh, Mr. Alex Stewart, fresh from his holiday. Hello, Alex. Hi, Joe. Did you have a nice holiday there? I did. I did. I I, I spent some of my time looking Great. up now, information. Now, let's get started and- talking about the football uh, today. Uh, before we do that, though, one shout out that we have to make. Uh, <laughs> it's to uh, illustrator, a longtime uh, TIFO illustrator, Philippe Fenner, who was married over the weekend. Uh, so a big, uh, yes, a round of applause there. A big congratulations to uh, Philippe Fenner and uh, to his bride, Claire. Uh, they had a lovely time and uh, it was good fun. So, uh, you know, well done. Well done to, to you there, Phil now. Joe, would you like to tell the listeners at what point of the evening you had to return home? No, no. Well, <laughs> the issue, the thing is, the issue is, uh, the, issue, the thing is, I, uh, I left the house. Uh, it was an you know, early start, 1 p.m., for the wedding, one pm. Didn't eat any food there, and uh, then I did. I did drink rather a lot of wine, um, uh, so I left at seven thirty. Uh, but <laughs> everyone was very happy, so it seemed fine. <laughs> you know, that's a wedding for you. Listen, today we've got lots to talk about. Tottenham, Chelsea, West Ham, Manchester United. We'll touch on uh, Liverpool, Crystal Palace. Indeed, Brighton. Uh, Brighton, Leicester and lots of other teams that played as well. Of course, Southampton with a nil-nil draw away to Manchester City. We'll come to Alex to discuss that a little bit later on. And a trip to the continent too. We'll be visiting the Netherlands, uh, Germany and Italy and Spain and France. All of the continents, countries there. Not all of them. If you want to know more continents than just five, you should read The Athletic because The Athletic is staffed by a whole uh, cohort of extremely talented journalists, all of whom know at least seven and upwards of the countries on the European continent. That's the minimum expectation when you join here. Uh, I just snuck through the system. Alex, how many countries do you know on the continent and which of the writers that knows those also is your favourite that works for The Athletic? Um, I would say I know Spain and it is Dermot Corrigan who knows the most about Spain. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. And in fact, we've got Rafa Honigstein, who knows perhaps the most about Germany. And we've got uh, James Horncastle, who knows the most about Italy. And then there's about 100 who know the most about the UK, and it's all equal. But now, if you'd like to uh, get a 30-day free trial, you can do by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Try it free for 30 days. And after a month, if you don't know at least nine countries on the continent, I'll be surprised. Right, today (laughs) we've got a lot of football to get through. There's a lot to get through. So without further ado, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of Sebastian Stafford-Bloor and Alex Stewart. Kicking things off here, uh, Tottenham nil, 3 Chelsea. Now, this was an interesting game, wasn't it, Seb? Because uh, in the first half, I remember watching it and thinking, ooh, maybe Spurs have worked out how to play against Chelsea. We sort of saw that last week, and we spoke about this a little bit with how uh, Aston Villa played against Chelsea. They had an impressive performance, pressing them very high. It was quite a, quite aggressive and incidentally, this isn't really very much of a Nuno thing to do, or at least not what we'd expect him to do. So in the first half, of course, it felt like a Tottenham had cracked the case. Um, they, they didn't, though, did they? They didn't. No. I, I also think some of the praise has been a little bit overdone. I think they had maybe 20 good minutes with plenty of energy. And yes, it was a strangely un-Nuno pressing system in those sort of first 20 minutes half an hour but I don't know I thought it was pretty meager I, I thought the only success really was that Spurs were better than they were against Palace when they had been dismal so yeah. it was a slightly illusory improvement also um, beyond a few moments um, thinking probably of that little a little chance that Son had when he was closed down by Kepa and both players seemed to get injured didn't really create anything worthwhile and beyond the energy and the effort and the occasional little bit of extravagance from Tangi and Dombly, never really seemed like they had any set plan for how they might score a goal, which is a bit of a flaw in the old football, isn't it? It is. With Tangi and Dombly too, I wanted to ask you about him because I couldn't work out almost at any point during the game whether he was having a really good game or not a good game. It's quite hard to work out with him. Yeah, well, I think he's he's quite a contradictory in a way. So when you watch football, one of the things that catches your eye it's always going to be you know, little bits of flair. So the old back heel, little pirouette between a few defenders. And I think with Ndombele, you have two sides. You have that, which makes everyone think, oh, he's having a really good game. He's definitely having an impact on this match. And then the lesser moments that people don't spot quite so easily, like if you look at the uh, N'Golo Kante goal and you see his effort in trying to close the play down, um, I'm not saying he would have got there, but it, it's, it's slightly comedic for a professional footballer. And it's a little bit lazy because on my part, because I think his his running styles kind of lends itself to criticism. He is naturally quite a languid player and he has that he leans forward slightly and he's got a he's got a slightly strange gait, I think that's fair to he, say. He's got a really incredible ability to control the ball when it's quite far away from him. He sure does. He's wonderfully gifted and he can do amazing things with the ball at his feet. The trouble is though that you kind of have this boom and bust situation with him. I remember we were having a conversation in the WhatsApp group before and Alex was quite positive about Tottenham and me being fatalistic and a Tottenham fan, I shot him down. And particularly with Ndombele, I think I said, um, 
he will create one goal and cost two. Mm. And that wasn't quite right, but I mean, it, it kind of got at what Ndombele is at this point in his Tottenham career. He could be he could be a marvellous player. Like in the future, would it surprise anybody to see him play for Real Madrid? Probably not. At the same time, would it surprise anybody to see him back in France in five years? Probably not. I'm not saying that France is a bad place to be. I just mean that it's a very there's a very wide area of potential for him, um, good and bad. And it's I'm no closer to really working out what actually he he is now. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, back to the sort of a broader reference point of the game, Alex. All three of Chelsea's goals came in the second half after what felt like, as uh, Seb said, Spurs perhaps being slightly more on top or at least in the balance in the first half. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about a tactical uh, shift that occurred at halftime. Mason Mount was taken off and replaced by N'Golo Kante. Uh, and then Chelsea moved to a 3-5-2. It felt like everything changed when that happened, but you're not quite so sure it was as impactful as um, as I've been saying. Uh, no, I don't I don't think it's about impact, because obviously it was impactful, um, although I would also point out that Spurs definitely tired, and so that pressing game dropped off, and Chelsea anyway found it easier to play through. So it's a little bit hard to know whether... Um, and Kante's slightly deeper position uh, versus Mounts was a significant factor in Chelsea's ability to bypass that press as it dropped off, but it did make a difference. Havertz being up front alongside Lukaku gave Chelsea two really quick outballs, both of whom are able to drop off and link play. That definitely helped them progress the ball through midfield. I think Kante was also able to drop deeper and pick the ball off the centre-backs more easily than Mount was. Their average positions were actually remarkably similar, Mount and Conte in the in the first and second half. So it wasn't so much that it it kind of saw Chelsea sitting much much deeper. You just had a player who was more willing to drop off and less required to stay quite so high. But also we've seen with Conte before, and this was something that occurred a lot under Maurizio Sarri, is he is very capable of bursting forwards, carrying the ball up into the right half space, getting into attacking positions. He just has an engine that allows him to basically cover more of the pitch. And I think that that gelled Chelsea a little bit better in the second half. So I'm not saying it wasn't that impactful, but it was also a relatively minor tweak. Also, guys, it seems like it's been forgotten that Chelsea had by far the best chance of the first half. And even though you know, Spurs did some things quite well and they were a little bit more energetic and a bit fierce with their press, they got opened up very, very easily on the counter. There was that one chance, I think after about 35 minutes when they broke and but for a slightly poor ball from Romelu Lukaku, they would have taken the lead. So would it have been a surprise if, if, if Chelsea had gone into halftime, maybe one or two goals up? I don't think so. And, and Kante, Kante's brilliant. Like Kante is going to seal a game off. And it, all, all that seemed to happen really was that... Um, Spurs, Alex is absolutely right, Spurs' energy um, dissolved and kind of Tottenham's fitness has been a, a talking point for probably about 18 months. But it also, it just it just locked off one more avenue to goal, which they weren't finding in the first place. And mm-hmm. so it was kind of, it feels like it's been overdone and overstressed in the aftermath a little bit. I think, I think that's right. I mean, to me, Tuchel is the probably the best manager in the world at the moment for in-game, well, I mean, just generally, actually, but certainly for in-game tweaks but I think what's really important is that those tweaks are considered and small 
like I know taking off a player who's seen as kind of a 10 or even an inverted winger and replacing them with the world's best defensive midfielder seems like a really big shift. But because of what Mount is expected to do in terms of dropping off and linking play and Conte's underrated ability to get forwards, it is less of a dramatic change than I think people have suggested it is. Mm. Well, Alex, we're five games into the Premier League season now. Uh, you've been away for a few weeks, so we haven't really had the chance to ask you to apprise us of your opinion of Chelsea. Um, we were in the lifts before and you said they're going to win. Tell me about that. Yes. Um well, what tell you about the lift? Tell us about when we were in the in the elevator together. Okay, um, so the elevator is like a small steel <laughs> thing that takes you between different. Oh, do you know what I did look up? I looked up where mm-hmm. the first multi-story car park in the world was built. <laughs> I bet you did. I yeah, bet you did. I did. When was, did we, was that? Did we mention that on a podcast? Mm. We said that this is the kind of thing that he does in his spare time, and we've been proven right. And you were, he knows. been proven right. Mm. Six Denman Street in London, and what's interesting is that it held a hundred vehicles across seven floors and nineteen thousand square feet. You think Chelsea are going to win the league there, do you now? Yeah, I, th- I think City would have uh, posed more of a challenge had they signed a legit striker, but. Chelsea went out and strengthened in that one area where they were perhaps slightly weaker. I think there's also significantly more depth on Chelsea's bench that allows them to make those intelligent tweaks under a really, really incredibly competent manager. The system is well established. They have players that fit it really well. Um, and they've got, you know, they've got defenders scoring good goals. Like it's, it's just, to me, it all seems aligned for that really personally okay cool well i'm sure we'll be talking about them a lot more as the season progresses but for now let's uh, begin discussing west ham one to manchester united now this is an interesting game um some very unusual refereeing decisions uh <laughs> which surprised me and also uh, mark noble coming on at the very last kick of the game to take a penalty without having touched the ball and missing, of course, uh, to to lose the game there. Um, any thoughts on any of those things, Seb? Or should we move on to our main talking point? So I have a bit of a conspiracy theory, actually, mm-hmm. which I thought I'd air. Mm-hmm. You know, unannounced, didn't put it on the plan. Sure, that so seems like a reasonable thing to do in 2021. Have, have you checked this with legal? Yes, it's what I spent my weekend doing. I sent a, you know, detailed email. Okay. Laying out the kind of the tenets of my theory and you know how I could justify it, and I'm going to launch into it. So, with the penalty decisions, because Joe and I were talking about this when they happened, the the two Manchester United uh, decisions, and the very 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 strange decision which didn't go West Ham's way, which I still don't understand. Having watched it back three or four times, I'm not quite sure how that becomes a Man United free kick. Anyway, so if you're a referee, I think the way in which you wave away a penalty decision probably influences how open you are to VAR review. Yeah. Because Martin Atkinson was very decisive with his kind of get up, no, not a penalty. And I think if you're a referee and you're directed towards your VAR review monitor by Stockley Park, are you that open to changing a decision? Because you're liable to make yourself look a little bit silly. And I, I watched it back this morning and it's Monday and I still don't really see the basis for any of those three decisions not being given as a penalty. It's very weird. And so, um, yes, my conspiracy theory is refereeing body language has a undue effect on VAR reviews. 
I don't. I think that's less a conspiracy theory and more a probably accurate observation that you've made. I would be embarrassed to every time you know someone questions a fact that you've told them and you say, no, 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 I'm a hundred percent sure. I'm a hundred percent sure about that fact, and then you're proven to be wrong. It's always extra embarrassing for every uh, every additional emphasis you place on your accurate accuracy. Okay, but this, this is about branding. If I say to you, when you say, oh, have you got anything to say about this? And I say, well, I've got a probably accurate observation to make. Yeah, it's quite interesting. <laughs> if I say I've got conspiracy theory, you want to hear that? Yeah. Because you want, you want to hear if I've had a really weird weekend or, yeah, what, what kind of strange thing is he going to say? Sure, people are excited. Anyway, the main thing about this game that I wanted to discuss, and perhaps this is something that we will come to discuss more uh, depending on how uh, Manchester United and Cristiano Ronaldo start to play out this season. But um, Ronaldo, of course, uh, scored one of Manchester United's goals. And uh, I think uh, Alex and I spoke about this earlier. He is maybe better than some people thought. The, the hold-up play still is obviously a lot faster than some people expected him to be too. But uh, Alex, he changes Manchester United's game quite significantly, doesn't he? He scores the goals, but I feel like he also sort of maybe... Prov- prevents other goals from being scored based on the kind of player that he is, that that uh, significant difference between him and Edinson Cavani, for example. Yeah, I think there's, there's three quick observations to make on this. The first is that he has a tendency to drop off and not to push defences back in the way that Cavani did. Cavani is all about subtle, quick movements in the box. Uh, Ronaldo likes to drop off because he likes to involve himself in play. He sees himself as the primary conduit for attacking play and what that does is it, it it lessens the space in front of a back line and that's one of the things that United uh, had made good use of last season people like Greenwood kind of running into the space ahead of fullbacks you know attacking that little corridor between a fullback and a centre-back if if a defence are able to push forwards, that corridor gets smaller or the, the space into which someone like Greenwood can run and start getting defenders thinking, oh, is he going to go left or right? That space diminishes. I think that's a problem. He also has a tendency, uh, Ronaldo, to drift to the left-hand side, which is very natural given that he spent a large part of his career as a left inverted forward. Um, unfortunately, that's the space that Paul Pogba is also trying to move into quite a bit it's a space that Bruno Fernandes is also not unfamiliar with um, and so what you end up with is this kind of cluster of players that that particularly in this game and this is something that we talked about earlier saw Pogba coming incredibly central and deep a lot of the time because he was sort of not he was being spaced or spaced out no he wasn't spaced out he was being forced out of the space that he wants to inhabit or that Solskjaer is trying to get him to inhabit that left a kind of corridor sometimes for sure to run into, which is fine, but it, it just looked disjointed in a way. And and the thing with Cavani that I really, really liked last season was that he was this quite still focal point around which all of these lovely, sexy movements could occur. And United in attacking transition, when they let their best players basically just go a bit vibesy, then it's fine. It's good. But... Ronaldo's trying to do different things and that is reducing the impact that those other players can have. I think particularly Greenwood. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll I'm sure we'll come back to that topic in the future. Uh, for now, Liverpool 3, nil Crystal Palace. Now, Alex, Odson Edouard is going to score a lot of goals for Palace, even though he didn't score any goals in this particular game. Mm, yes, I think that is probably true. 
Well, Brighton beat Leicester 2-1 uh, over the weekend as well, which is very impressive. They're currently fourth place uh, on 12 points. Exciting stuff. I know that one JJ Bull is, uh, is preparing a, a tactical analysis, uh, a piece for, for TIFO IRL uh, in the in the next week or so, um, which we'll be excited to see. Uh, so no discussion of that here and now. Uh, Norwich won 3 Watford. Uh, Norwich's defending is bad. Does anyone want to talk about how bad it is and maybe with specific reference to uh, Grant Hanley having a bad game in a bad game overall? I feel like you've had conversations with your Uncle Damien over the weekend, so maybe you should lead that conversation. I have, and I tell you what, as I scroll through my WhatsApp now, I can see the conversation that I had with Uncle Damien, of course a Norwich fan. I said uh, I said yesterday, because I was at a wedding, I said, oh, watching Match of the Day without knowing the scores. Norwich is defending! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Uncle Damien said, awful. Our worst performance of the season, only five games, you know, so there's that. Uh, And specifically with Grant Hanley, he said he's costing us a goal a game. Now, I mean, I'm no analyst, but I will say if you let your striker in front of you to score a near post goal as easily as Grant Hanley did (laughs) in this game against Watford, that's no good. And I mean, I suppose we potentially could have expected this with Norwich we've seen it uh, already a couple of seasons ago but also even their performance in the in the championship last season um they scored lots of goals they had some fantastic attacking performances uh, but the of course the massive downside Seb was that they also conceded many goals many many more goals than the teams in the immediate uh, the immediate sort of surroundings by them i think you have to go all the way down to like 8th or ninth in the championship before you find another team that conceded as many goals as Norwich and it just seems to be showing well, you, you say we kind of expected this. I, I'm not sure I did. I thought that actually, as in, in contrast to what they did last time, they came up into the Premier League. I quite like the reinforcements. I thought. They oh were no, smart. I said we could. We could have expected it. Not we did. Oh well, I, I still didn't. I I misread it completely. Me either. Thought yeah. that actually, um, they'd added in the right areas. They brought a caliber of player that would make them more competitive in the Premier League. And if anything, I can't quite remember the tone of the first few games two years ago. I know, I remember, of course, the, the win over Manchester City. This time, it seems weirdly hopeless. Not in the, not in the sense that they're being, I mean, they're, they're being outpunched a little bit too, but the mistakes are really concerning. And the kind of mistakes, yeah. it's not sort of, you know, and also we, I, I feel a bit sorry for Grant Hanley, but then again, this is not a championship player with no Premier League experience. He's been here before and this kind of thing is happening and I don't know whether that's I don't know whether this is us reading a little bit too much into it but it feels doesn't feel great that that's happening in September no because this doesn't seem to be you know when a, when, it, when a team gets promoted they usually play with all that sort of uh, newly promoted energy and enthusiasm and they outwork a couple of teams higher up the table they take a few points then everyone's everyone, everyone starts to say things like oh well they'll be fine you know they'll be fine they haven't had their they'll be fine moment and you'd expect that. I think and it was supposed to be against Watford at home. I think that because, I mean, no one expected them to take any points from their opening four fixtures. Which is fine because they were difficult. But at but home Watford to your home, fellow promoted team, you yeah, have to win yeah. the game. Or at least you have to feel like you could have won the game. If it was a kind of competitive nil-nil or a 1-1, take a point, you think, okay, things to work on. And, you know, we've shown we can compete. Haven't seen much competing from Norwich. And that's probably the right word. Worried for them, worried for Uncle Damien. There's a good piece that uh, Michael Bailey did on The Athletic about um, the fact that, that Norwich's defenders keep appealing for offside. 
and they are spending so much time trying to set that high line and compress the space, which is obviously very kind of Daniel Farker um, anyway, that they're kind of obsessed with going, oh, you you know, you must be offside. And not, they're not doing the simple thing of just following the man and trying to close down the opportunity. I think it's also worth pointing out that Buendia put in a significant defensive shift, even as quite an attacking player. And that was that was something that stood out to me, I think the the season that they came up was, you know, that that ability to press from the front, um, and you know that now that has slackened off a little bit. Maybe that's exposing them slightly as well. Do you do you have any sympathy, Alex? Because they knew they were going to lose Wendia for a year before he, he went. They had an agreement that he could go for a certain amount of money, and knew that that would probably happen. So they had plenty of time to kind of game plan for their return to the Premier League and mm. to kind of restore the things that they were going to be missing as a result of, uh, of him leaving. Um, yeah. Well, not restore, replace the things that they were going to be missing. It's it's a weird one. They just seem to... The Buen- I completely agree. Buendia was a, hugely influ- was a hu- hugely influential player, but it's not as if his departure came out of the blue. Oh, no, completely. And I, I have no sympathy for teams that don't don't prep stuff. I suppose... Like you, I kind of looked at particularly the addition of Billy Gilmore, who I adore as a player. Um, I thought Kabak was a good pickup because actually I don't think he's as bad as all that. And, you know, it has sufficient room to develop into quite a good player. Um, so, yeah, I I, I don't Josh know. Josh Sargent, that. of course. Yeah, we've got uh, Rashica well, as well, who's been impressive in the first few games. A very good he's he's an excellent player. Yeah, Sergeant, I was a little less hot on. I think he's a bit one-dimensional, but I I think you know it, a lot of what they did do made sense. But again, if you're if you're seeking to integrate, even if you're trying to integrate four good new players, it that is still quite a lot to have to do. You know, teams that have a greater degree of continuity find it easier. Um, I also think there's that that point that Seb made before about newly promoted teams coming up and having that kind of surge of energy. And when Norwich got a very good result in their first game when they were promoted last time, if I recall. Well, they didn't have a good result. They they lost... um... Well, they lost to Liverpool, but, to they, Liverpool, looked... but they, they scored a goal. Um, they looked very, very impressive. And even though the score was, I think, 4-1, um, they, they, it was 0-0 after the first half. And um, they right. looked like, you know, they, looked like they could play in the league. Of. Yeah, and I think maybe there's a slight danger of, of almost it having happened a little bit before. You know, there's a slight kind of sag to it. You think, okay, well, we've been up here before and we know that energy and enthusiasm and so on actually isn't enough and it it makes them a little more fearful of things you know you contrast that with Brentford who have had three clean sheets I think and look like they were born to be in the Premier League then that that maybe is some of that energy and excitement that comes from popping up for the first time and just really hitting the ground running I also think they have a better coach but you know well, speaking of energy and excitement, uh, here's, an, here's a little break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Brentford. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Ah, we're back. Uh, Wolves nil to Brentford. Alex, you said they uh, they look at home in the Premier League. They certainly do, don't they? Even when they're away. Ba-bum. Even when they're away Shh. in the Premier League. Sorry, that was awful. Um, mm, yeah, was. I I think. I mean, okay, Brentford. Obviously, we 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 talked about Brentford in an IRL video. They are well known for doing clever things off the pitch. They have a tactical statistician. They work on set pieces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think what really impressed me about this was was two things. Firstly, um, the way that even though their build up patterns from deep are relatively straightforward, they are executed at high speed with precision and with enough variation to make them difficult to mark. So it's not like they're doing super complicated stuff, but they're doing it so snappily and so well that it's hard for teams to work with it. They also adapted really well to um, going down to 10 um, after Baptiste was sent off. They looked organized, they adapted seamlessly, and Ivan Tony is just marvelous. I mean, he's, you know, the, the way he was bursting past Wolves players, he has... He has movement, he has intelligence, his link-up play is good. He works really well with Mbwemo in that kind of front two role. Like, he's just... He looks like somebody who has been playing Premier League for a, a while. Like, he's not a complete player, but he's very, very good. And that having that with also a team who look like they know exactly what they're supposed to do in any given circumstance just gives me real confidence for Brentford. Yeah, what do you think, Seb, about Ivan Tony? He seems fantastic, doesn't he? I think what struck me, what surprised me at least, is the softness of his touch. Like we knew he could score goals, knew he could score goals in a lot of different ways, but I'd certainly never seen the levels of subtlety uh, in his game before. I didn't, well, at least I didn't think that they would be as prominent at this level of the game against a kind of a high standard of defender. But he's, um, yeah, he's shown just kind of um, how three-dimensional he is as a forward. Can I uh, be a bit of a killjoy? Like, I, I want to frame this right because um, I want to give credit to Brentford. I think they've done really well since they've come up. But I, I think I was more disappointed in Wolves on Saturday. I, the the Mimbrevo goal was like scandalous to concede. But then when you go down to... When you, when you get a man advantage, there's a really simple way for how you make that pay and... and uh, you know how you accentuate that advantage and where you find space and wolves were so chaotic especially you I mean they're, they're okay until they get within the final third and we've talked about the xg thing and they're not scoring goals and that kind of stuff okay all true because another another game without scoring but their approach play is just dismal it looks like they've got no plan like it's it's so panicked and it's easy to pick on an Adama Traore because it feels like he's reverted to what he was two or three years ago, which is a player that can do all kinds of things and fashion all sorts of openings for himself only to waste them. He's the kind of player that shuts doors on himself, which is, um, I'm sure, something that everyone will recognize in him. But whatever this disease is, it's afflicting all of these forward players and their decision-making. Um, even even guys that have just turned up, like Trincao, I thought Podence had a really... Um, or pedants, as we've been told to call him. Yeah. Um, yeah, corrected that. Um, 
sounds less Charles Dickensy there, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it's not as fun. Not as fun. Um, Feels like Jimenez yeah, needs just, that goal as well, doesn't it? After coming back. Yeah, I had a question actually because um, during the second half, Jimenez obviously got frustrated with the strapping on his the protective. Um, I don't know what you want to call it. It's not quite a scrum cap. It's like a headband, isn't it? With padding on the side where his um, his fracture occurred. And then he took took it off, I think, because he wasn't he wasn't getting the right purchase on the ball, or he wasn't. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was affecting his peripheral vision. I'm I'm not sure. But I wonder what the rule is about that. Like insurance wise, like he, he's obviously uh, he's obviously been told to wear it. I would be surprised if you can just. Take I'm not it off. sure. I I wonder if he would have been told to wear it. I don't know. I think it like was a choice. Um, I think normally a choice, isn't it? Like it, it tends to be yeah. a safety thing as well. Like not not necessarily a physical safety thing because if he's going to smack heads with someone, even if he's got a bit of protective padding, it might uh, it might help not breaking the skin, but it'll it'll do damage. I think maybe it's a, psych- it's a psychological thing, perhaps. Yeah, it's, it certainly suggest, was like, with Pedacek, wasn't it? Yeah, like that's why he never took it off. But I, I wonder if it's a kind of yeah, it's like a, a comfort blanket sort of situation yeah. where you have it and you feel slightly better about contesting high balls. I, and if it was, it's strange. He, that it obviously, I, I, wasn't comfortable for him. <laughs> obviously not. But I mean, he's he's played quite well over the last couple of games. It's just he hasn't mm. found that goal. But I I don't know. Like I I think it's it's right to praise the newly promoted team. I think Brentford are. Uh, breath of fresh air they've been very interesting to see and and um it's very um enlightening to see that kind of style roll out at the top level at the same time the most damning thing damning thing you could say about wolves is that ah, they didn't actually have to play that well and they also survived the, the bat he's sending off is one of the worst decisions i think i've seen from a player in ages you're 60 yards from your goal you're on a yellow card yeah you've got teammates behind you and you rugby tackle an opponent to the floor and you're about to be one. substituted as well i think right yeah, if you're Thomas Frank, you'd be livid. Yeah. You just you 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 can't like imagine if imagine if a team like Wolves who aren't scoring goals had come back into the game and you're this could change your entire season if you're Brentford. Going to somewhere like Molyneux and winning is it's a statement in a sense, but I think it's worth more to the to the players within the squad because like okay, not only we're not dependent on on playing in front of our own fans, we've got a point at Villa Park, which is uh, an achievement against this new Villa squad. And then we go and knock off a team who aren't playing well, but you know, for a couple of years, we're the benchmark for what you do when you're newly promoted, and you put it at risk. It's a terrible decision. It was a stupid, stupid thing to do, but it was funny. So there's that. Anyway, Aston Villa three nil Everton. Um, Seb, this showed how difficult Benitez's job might be in the future. Things have sort of started, you know, reasonably well, haven't they? Um, but uh, fans were a little bit unhappy after this one. Yeah, so Benitez at Everton for now is a very kind of uneasy alliance. It's a very fragile relationship mm. because obviously of his Liverpool past. Um, and it's a new compound. It, Will it take? Not very stable. You know, it's still in that rocky phase and quite telling that one bad performance. And this wasn't actually a bad performance. This was a bad 20 minutes. And it allowed, I mean, if, if Damari Gray scores and doesn't put a shot past the far post then Villa don't take the lead. Villa probably going to go on and score another goal, another two goals. And then you don't have the reaction against Benitez. And I think they've started really well in the season. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. the little Townsend Gray dynamic at the top of the pitch has worked really well. They've played well considering they've lost Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I thought Rondon had some nice moments. So Benitez has done some good, some good things. But um, it's, a, it's a warning about what may, my, might lie ahead. Too many bad results and fans who... 
are looking for a reason to hate something. And we've all been there. We've all, we've all, we've all been in the same situation with our clubs when someone who we don't like is appointed or a, a decision is made that we don't agree with and we kind of put up with it, put up with it, put up with it. And then we get our opportunity to rage against it and we go for it. And we probably overact a little bit. That's what Benitez has in his yeah. future if with too many of those kind of results. Get him. Um, get the coach. Get but him. It's, it, but it, it's, it reminds me a little <laughs> bit of the, not the same kind of person, but the Jose Mourinho factor. Like when Jose Mourinho comes into a football club, some fans love it, some fans hate it. And then you get this kind of middle 50, 60% who say, ah, I'm not really that fond of him, but I'll shut up for a bit and, you know, because yeah. we might be successful. And then it's not successful and something bad happens and you just, you scream. Um, so Benitez, yeah, needs to be a little bit careful uh, because I, I felt like the way, yeah, the way Everton fell apart, like if, if you look at that third Villa goal and you think, right, Leon Bailey is one of the quickest players in the country, if not Europe, very, very quick player. And you allow him that much space in that position, it's quite weird. It's a little bit of a surrender. It is weird. I felt. Alex, uh, what have you made of uh, Benitez's Everton so far? I, I think I'd agree with Seb. I mean, they, so they've they've won the XG battle in the first three games. They were even um, in the last, not the last game, the last but one game. And this one, it, I think you're right. Like, it's. It wasn't a bad performance. They they got. I mean, Cash's goal comes basically out of nowhere. Then there's the mix up at the near post corner, which is just unfortunate defending. Really, um, totally agree with Seb on Bailey. That's is that bad prep, bad positioning. I don't know, but I think the issue as well is that you know Everton's signings are a bit. They're sensible, but they're a bit uninspired. So you've got a guy who was sort of you know a a good player for Crystal Palace for a while in Townsend. Gray didn't really cut it at Leicester, went off. Now he's back. Rondon is, I think, very good, but 32. So these these players are not... It doesn't feel like there's anything to get that excited about if you're an Everton fan and and kind of competent, sensible performances. They don't enliven things, do they? Like Bailey's goal, taking it, hitting it with his head then hammering it in off the underside of the bar like that gets people excited you don't it doesn't feel like Everton are exciting it feels like they're they're competent and they're doing it that it's competent players doing competent stuff most of the time it's really hard to put yourself into the position of a fan because you don't have the same affection and the same biases but I think I would be quite excited as an Everton fan like I I I would enjoy watching Andros Townsend have a good moment in his career. He deserves it. He's a he's a decent human being and he's been through some difficulties. I think Damari Gray is... I, I've always found him fascinating because I've watched him since he was playing age group football for England and he's so talented. And all of a sudden, as Alex said, having not really made it at Leicester, never quite you know getting a, a starting position to keep... Also, not really, I, I'm not sure I'd say didn't get a chance at Leverkusen, but Leverkusen were very quick to let him go. They didn't, you know, they weren't too bothered about him wanting to leave. And now he is a threat. He's He's been pretty much some excellent, but very good through the first few weeks. Um, and I, I think I would quite like that. You've got these sort of reclamation projects as opposed to what's happened at Everton in the last five years, which is a lot of players. It's just a lot of turnover and churn and a lot of crap. 
like a lot of players that you just think from a from a talent id perspective if you look at the recruiting patterns over the last five years you just look at some of them and think he was never going to succeed nor was he nor was he nor was he and nor was he because you know if you put all these players on the same pitch it's missing attribute a b and c and and attribute a obviously is, is pace because that was the famous everton deficiency um a couple of years ago but i think they're a decent side i just think this is a bad result and i i think like as I get older, and this might be describing the boring side of my personality, I feel I feel like I, I I gravitate towards competence, and like Benitez is competent, and you've got a core of competent players, and you've kind of got something which isn't going to be too much of a disaster, or you know, isn't going to be too irritating. And that's ah, quite the romance of functionality there. So. <laughs> okay, now. In this regard, Seb, to me, yeah. you're preaching to the choir because you know how I feel about tidy defensive. You love defensive. boring stability. You are a five out of ten kind of guy. Oh, yes, every every yeah. time. Um, but I think the issue that Everton have is they are a big club and they are in a situation now where there are other clubs in the Premier League who are pushing ahead of them, not just in terms of achievement, but also in terms of style of play, things that are exciting. I agree with you about seeing Damari Gray excel and score three goals in five games. Like That makes me happy. But, uh, well, uh, at the same time, I, I think if you're an Everton fan, you're looking at some of these maybe Aravists pushing past you, or you're looking at West Ham under a former Everton manager doing really, really well with some exciting young players. And you think what we're actually getting is kind of fairly stolid fare under a manager who was last really good 10 years ago and at our cross city rivals like i can i can understand why as a fan that's difficult it, it was always the top 4 then it was yeah. spurs then it was everton now if you look if you're an everton fan you see what spurs have achieved and you see teams like leicester and you know and every season a different another sort of different smaller you know for want of a better term smaller team pushing past everton i think i'd be irritated they had everything that they needed to uh, to push on as did aston villa i suppose is another another similar sort of club uh, club stature but um seb your mouth's making noises as if you want to say something yeah no because i you mentioned Spurs, and I'm able to say this because Spurs have just been through it, but have to remember the context. Everton are building a new stadium. Their future is not now, it's ahead of them. So if you're making decisions, if you're um, if you're appointing coaches, I think your objective at Everton, whether the fans like it or not, is we don't want a disaster. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you talk about Spurs, right, well, Spurs were good, but they're not now um, because it's difficult. If you... Unless you're a club with an unlimited budget who can just pay a, pay for a stadium and move in seamlessly and keep recruiting in the same way, fine. But there aren't very many clubs like that. Um, mention West Ham. Okay, well, West Ham did move stadium, but West Ham were essentially given a stadium um, with one of the most uh, oddly weighted tenancy agreements I think football's ever seen. A very, very strange, unique scenario. Sure. So, sure. Until Everton get into their new home, I understand the caution. I completely agree. Like, you don't really have a stylistic identity. There's no real sense of the club pushing towards a clear objective. I get that, and that would frustrate me too. But I understand the the other way as well, because we learned this the hard way. It's when a club wants to build a stadium, it sacrifices what it does on the playing side. Um, and 
Arsenal did it. Arsenal did it for a very, very, very long time. Everton are doing it now. Spurs are paying the cost for organisational attention being drained away from the football side and being, and then a couple of years later, further down the line, thinking, oh yeah, we actually need to be a competent side as well because otherwise people aren't going to come to this brand new stadium. So I think Everton have a... Everton are not making the scale of mistake yet that Spurs did during that period. There's no, you know, Mourinho, there's no bin mm-hmm. fire, there's no, you know, all that stuff. There's no lack of recruiting. There have been sensible solution players coming into certain positions. And okay, there are going to be games like this Villa defeat, but, uh, and this is really unfair because fans can't always be expected to just gaze into the future two years down the line. But that is kind of what I'm saying at the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, anyway, moving on, uh, Burnley nil one Arsenal. Uh, Arsenal a second one nil victory in a row. Congratulations to them. And Burnley, of course, are signing a new four year contract with uh, Sean Dyche uh, to stay on as the as Premier League manager. There we go. We'll be covering Sean Dyche uh, soon enough. Um, a very quick word, Alex, if you would, on the the nil nil draw between Manchester City and and Southampton. I believe that was at, at the Etihad. A surprise result there. Yes, I think Hassan Hootel said after the game that probably the most effective way to get a result against City is to press in a highly organised pretty functional 4-2-2-2 system because it shuts down a lot of their avenues of building out from the back. Um, Southampton worked really, really hard. Um, I think it, it, it was, yeah, I mean, a nil-nil at the Etihad against City is is something to be celebrated. It, it wasn't necessarily a, a feast of attacking football from Southampton, but given how results have been slightly up and down and there have been question marks, I think, around... You know, Hassan Hootel bringing in these younger players straight away. People like Lee Romantu, who I think is is great, but you know, oh, that, he's great. He's, he's a he's a fantastic player. But yeah, there's the 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 beginning of the season was not necessarily uh, the most comfortable and relaxed place to be for a Southampton fan. So I think this is a result that that gives Ralph a little bit of breathing space with the fans. Not that he needs it with the board, because I think they rightly love him, as do I. Um, it was nice to see him wearing a little tartan tie as well to go with his waistcoat. There we go. Lovely tie. Now, we'll be back after this break uh, to uh, head to the continent. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ah, uh, here we are (laughs) on the continent. Uh, The first thing I've got down here is a Cologne 1. Uh, one RB Leipzig. Who, want, who wants this one? Is that, is that a you? Is that a you? Because oh, someone has yeah, written here it was great, that uh, was... they look very loose. They're very loose under Jesse Marsh. Do RBL. Yeah, they exist in this strange world between defending chaotically and allowing lots of chances, then also being able to create chances out of nothing themselves. And at the moment, that's making some for some really, really entertaining football matches. Now, um, I don't want to ruin the plot lines of this game, but I'm going to direct people towards highlights of it and promise them that they'll see a couple of really fantastic saves, a couple of really good goals, 
a brilliant assist from Nkuku, which didn't amount to anything because of an offside flag. And also, in stoppage time, one of the worst misses I've seen all season to win the game. So go and watch it. It's um, it's great. I feel a little bit sorry for Jesse Marsh because at the moment, it feels like Leipzig are maybe seven-tenths of the way towards what he wants them to be, even at this early stage, because they're playing with a, a stylistic flourish, but in a very fragile way, if that makes sense. Um, so it's they're, they're good value, Leipzig games, but he's um, yeah, it's not quite working yet, which is fun for neutrals, okay. I guess. And uh, PSV nil for Feyenoord, Seb, as well. That sounds oh, like a good one. Crazy game. Um, also really interesting because occasionally, like... <laughs> anything, anything that makes you go, gah, must be good. Well, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a regular watcher of the Eredivisie. I've become so since moving to Germany because there's just a bit more coverage of it. Um, every now and again, like Feyenoord, Feyenoord find themselves in these really strange games. People might remember the, um, the 6-2 over Ajax from a couple of years ago. In the same season, Ajax ended up going to the Champions League final, I think I'm right in saying. Um, but Feyenoord absolutely battered them in Rotterdam. Um, and this was very strange. It wasn't, I mean, superficially, it wasn't a battering. PSV controlled the ball, a good territory, plenty of shots, but they just got picked off. And if you can find it, I posted it on my Twitter account earlier, but um, Feyenoord scored their fourth goal in stoppage time. The goal scorer goes to the, the corner flag in front of the away fans picks out of the ground and does a bit of a, not quite a, a Graham Sooness with it, but sort of raises it in celebration. And um, just look at the faces in the background and the stewarding, and it gets pretty angry. And uh, the goal scorer runs away with a big smile on his face. It's kind of funny slash concerning slash glad nothing bad happened there. But it was it was really weird as a game, really weird. Mm, okay. Uh, well, uh, bonjour, Monsieur Stewart. Uh, would you like to take us around Liga, por favor? I know that's not. I know that's not French. I said it by accident. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously, we're not going to talk about the big thing, which is the PSG thing, because um, boring. Uh, 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 well, a it's well, no, I'm not going to say that because uh, <laughs> I can't. The, the bullet is at the work. The bullet is at work. Um, so JJ will have something out on that. But just, just a couple of things firstly Saint-Étienne Bordeaux um, which I caught uh, a bit of on Sunday night uh, was played in a absolutely torrential downpour uh, I have never seen the ball hold up so much players sliding all over the place um, and at like 50 minutes to go I just thought this like you can't play in these conditions someone is going to get their legs snapped um, and the referee soldiered on and are about 20 minutes later it died off, but it was kind of stupid. And that leads me to the second point, which is that... Wait, 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 wait. let's hold there for a second, though. Do you think, Alex, that if there's an awful lot of torrential rain, that forget about the wind, but when you kick the ball up into the air, rain must be hitting it on its way down. It must come down sooner than if there was no rain. Um, I think that's probably a negligible effect. Hmm. But, Hmm. but, But thank you. For your meteorological yeah. insights, um, yeah. I, I think I think yeah. pr- one of the reasons potentially that uh, the game wasn't called off or abandoned or postponed or what have you is that French football seems really really fractious at the moment. Uh, so obviously we had uh, Marseille Nice the issues there a couple of weeks back before I went on holiday not to Marseille I hasten to add um, and this time round in the Derby du Nord 
uh, between Lens and Lille. There was a pitch invasion at halftime. Lens fans stormed across to uh, basically offer Lille fans out. It is quite a hotly contested derby, um, but there is a preponderance of crowd violence now in French football, which is alarming. It interestingly also... You know, there's there's been some toing and froing in the UEFA coefficients about which the fifth best league in Europe is, and Portugal and France are kind of swapping places now, depending on who does well in European competition. Add that to this crowd trouble, add it to the fact that obviously the broadcasting situation has been complicated, that there are good players leaving. Yeah, it just feels like French football is stuttering towards a bad period. Yeah. Okay, well, let's leave France behind and head on our 20-hour, 59-minute journey on the Corsica-Sardinia ferry all the way to Italy for Verona 3 to Roma, Alex. Uh, yes, I... I didn't put this down, um, but I did see the goal that Seb has helpfully oh, highlighted. Seb. You go um, there now. I Honestly, I thought this was the best game of the weekend. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, it... Uh, also rain, not quite in, in French doses, French amounts, but um, pretty wet. And Mourinho's first loss in the league as Roma coach. And the winning goal, uh, go and watch it. Um, because in the wet, slippery ball, uh, Davide Faroueni, I think I'm saying that correctly, uh, one touch up volley and off the bottom of the crossbar. It's a yeah, For a game that included um, a Lorenzo Pellegrini back-heeled goal in the first half, this was kind of some way above that. This was just a, just a, one of those where um, the fans are into it, the weather is just right, the conditions frame the game perfectly, Mourinho's getting angry in his technical area, and Verona hold on for a 3-2 win. Great goals, great drama, excellent own goal in the second half too. Everything you could ask for. Mm, lovely. And now let us uh, climb in our Bugatti Veyron and drive the 1,971.6 kilometres all the way to Spain, uh, Seb, where a Valencia won two Real Madrid occurred. Yeah, I feel... Spanish car and in a Spanish car. Yeah, nice. Weird. Okay, well, uh, I felt a bit sorry for Valencia because Valencia played very well. Um, but the reason I put this down was because I felt like it was worth highlighting Karen Benzema's performances beyond his goal scoring. He scored the winning goal with a really brave header uh, in, I think, Real Madrid completed their turnaround in about two and a half minutes, uh, 86th and 88th minute of the game. But Benzema was really talismanic and it's not something you associate with him because obviously very gifted player, like lots of quality, fantastic goal scorer, all those kind of things. But there was a real determination to take some fairly rough challenges, to try and create chances. There's a real responsibility to his game. Um, and I, I, it, it's, I don't know, like it's, it's a, whenever he comes up, it's always about these delicate touches. So if you think back to the European Championship and you know his goal against Switzerland, the little back heel touch that set the ball up and the chip finish. But this was like a really blue-collared performance, which ah, is deserving of loads of admiration. And really big win. Um, Atletico Madrid failed to win. Um, they, um, they had a, a very, very strange performance over the weekend. Um, but this was a really gritty, nasty, un-Carlo Ancelotti type of victory. So it was just interesting and a nice way to finish off the weekend. Well, and finishing it off indeed, uh, that is uh, the, the roundup of all of the 
most of the football that happened in in the on the European continent. There we go. Uh, Sebastian Stafford Bloor, thanking you for your time today. Thanking you, Divine Joe. And uh, Alex Stewart, uh, pleased to have you back, and uh, we'll see you on, on our television screens soon when we all have the YouTube app on there and we can watch you on the T4 IRL channel. Of w- would you like to know the disparity between the average size of a US and a UK car parking space? Oh, God, it's been such a good two weeks. <laughs> Because the US is three meters by anywhere between 4.9 and 6.1, whereas the UK is 2.4 by 4.8. We have to go now. Uh, So that's all we have time for. Uh, Thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, Of course, we'll be back next week with the Bullard. Uh, so keep an eye on uh, what's happening on the TFO IRL channel this week and of course thanks as usual uh, to producer Adonis for all of his assistance today and one more time for uh, Philippe Fenner congratulations Phil I give it a year we'll be back next week bye Athletic.